Oh boy. Starting this one off weird, aren't we? Um, that's all right, it's gonna be a bit of a weird stream. Today we're only reading one chapter. That's because this chapter and the next chapter are extra long. And so instead of going from six until nine, because I have to do a bunch of cooking later, instead, I'm just going to uh, sort of fill in the extra dead space with um, probably a bit more yammering. Don't worry, there's still plenty of chapter. Yeah, you don't. You, you certainly don't need to worry about that, but um, just one long chapter tonight instead of two short ones. Alright, that chapter is chapter 5. Now, as usual, I'm going to go back and um, give a quick summary of what happened on last week's stream. And while I'm doing that, go ahead and put anything, anything at all you'd like to discuss in the chat, and I would love to talk about it. Um, if, uh, while I'm reading, you've also got anything you want to talk about, please put that in chat as well. Just whenever you like, I will either uh, pause really quickly and we can discuss it then, or if it seems like something that's going to take a while to discuss, I may hold off until the end of the chapter and we can talk about it then. Or a, a chapter break or something like that. Just somewhere appropriate. Okay, so. Last week, chapters three and four. Harry. Harry's distraught last week. Um, he's just run away from home after inflating his uh, just awful Aunt Marge. He escapes. He thinks he's going to have to run away. He thinks the, the ministry might be, might uh, decide to come after him. He's really got a, a whole lineup of awful things he thinks are going to going to uh, befall him. But um, nothing really seems to happen, except that as he uh, as he leaves his house, his aunt and uncle's house, um, he stumbles into an alleyway and sees this this image in front of him. Um, it doesn't make any noise. He doesn't hear anything, but then he gets startled because the night bus shows up um, and when he looks back there's nothing in the alleyway now the night bus is a wizarding world uh, transportation system uh, the bus basically can pick you up wherever you hold your wand hand out into the street um, and it will just appear it seems to teleport around England all over the place so um, it's an interesting little system uh, giant purple bus Three deckers with um, uh, just sort of a quaint little pair of conductors. While he's on board, he hears all about this man, Sirius Black. Um, apparently, Sirius Black was a real bad guy in the Wizarding World. Uh, he was one of Voldemort's people. In fact, it seemed like maybe he thought that when Voldemort took power, he would be. Voldemort's right-hand man. Um, of course, Voldemort didn't come to power. He was defeated. And uh, Sirius Black apparently blew up a street full of muggles. He killed a wizard and 13 muggles in the street. Uh, they arrive at the Leaky Cauldron, where Harry thinks he's going to have to hide out from the Ministry, etc., when he's greeted by none other than Cornelius Fudge, the Minister of Magic himself. Uh, turns out he's not in so much trouble, but Cornelius Fudge is acting strangely. Um, he dodges questions about Sirius Black and why people are treating Harry kind of oddly, um, and insists that 
Harry doesn't need to uh, go back home. He can just stay uh, in a room at the Leaky Cauldron for the time being, as long as he will return there um, next year. Next summer. Let's see. Harry doesn't really want to do that anyway, but that's part of the deal. Okay. In Chapter 4, Harry is just simply spending time at um, the Leaky Cauldron and in Diagon Alley. You know, he's got a couple of weeks to sort of wander. Goes to get ice cream. And it seems like a pretty good life, to be honest. He picks up his books, um, including one book about divination that's the practice of trying to see into the future um, and nearby he notices a book on evil omens and notices a, a large black dog makes him a little uneasy but he eventually starts to enjoy his time he's got freedom he's got time he's got free time away from the Dursleys he's among magic people as you can see he's, you know Ollivander's in the background This, by the way, I love this picture. It seems like it would be a lot of fun, especially in fall, just to walk around in uh, <laughs> in the magical world uh, in Diagon Alley, and, and uh, you know, go for go for tea and coffee and butter beer, and I don't know. I, I I think I would enjoy those two weeks a lot, especially at his age. Um, they go in to have Ron's rat looked at after Harry meets up with Ron and Hermione and gives them a quick update on all the things that have been happening in his life. Ron's rat seems to be uh, a little worse for wear. Maybe Egypt didn't agree to him. Didn't didn't agree with him? Yeah, didn't agree with him. Um, they bring him in and they're, they're accosted by an enormous uh, orange cat. The thing almost kills Scabbers, um, and then, not five minutes later, Hermione walks out of the pet shop with the cat. Its name is Crookshanks, and she loves the thing. Ron, of course, protests, but not much he can do. They meet back up with uh, Mr. and Mrs. Weasley, Ron's parents, and um, it turns out that they will all be staying at the Leaky Cauldron for the, let's see, I think it's just over a weekend. Um, prior to attending school. My face is looking a little bit blown out. I'll take care of that at the end of the summary. Um, so, uh, Arthur Weasley and Molly Weasley are here. After everyone goes to bed, they get into an argument. Harry hears them and uh, listens outside the door. It would seem that there's some secret that they're not telling him. Molly Weasley doesn't want to tell him, and Arthur Weasley thinks that they should. Of course, Harry, listening in, hears what the secret is. The consensus in the wizarding world is that Sirius Black escaped Azkaban, the highest security wizarding prison in the world, to come after Harry Potter. It doesn't seem a great sense as to why, or as to how he might do so, but they believe Harry is in incredible danger. Molly doesn't think that they should burden Harry with this knowledge. After all, he's going to be at the safest place in the wizarding world, according to many. That is, at Hogwarts, with Albus Dumbledore watching over him. But Arthur thinks it's best to tell him the truth. 
Harry sneaks back to his room. Over here is Fred and George as they are playing a prank on Percy. But that is where we ended. Now, we commence with the next chapter. Chapter 5, The Dementor. Tom woke Harry up the next morning with his usual toothless grin and a cup of tea. Harry got dressed and was just persuading a disgruntled Hedwig back into her cage when Ron banged his way into the room, pulling a sweatshirt on over his head and looking irritable. <sighs> the sooner we get on the train, the better, he said. At least I can get away from Percy at Hogwarts. Now he's accusing me of dripping tea on his photo of Penelope Clearwater. You know, Ron grimaced. His girlfriend. She's hidden her face under the frame because her nose has gone all blotchy. I've got something to tell you, Harry began, but they were interrupted by Fred and George, who had looked in to congratulate Ron on infuriating Percy once again. They headed down to breakfast, where Mr. Weasley was reading the front page of the Daily Prophet with a furrowed brow, and Mrs. Weasley was telling Hermione and Ginny about a love potion she'd made as a young girl. All three of them were rather giggly. "'What were you saying?' Ron asked Harry as they sat down. "'Later,' Harry muttered as Percy stormed in. Harry had no chance to speak to Ron or Hermione in the chaos of leaving. They were too busy heaving all their trunks down the leaky cauldron's narrow staircase and piling them up near the door. With Hedwig and Hermes—' "'Hermes? Hello?' With Hedwig and Hermes, Percy's screech owl perched on top of their cages. A small wickerwork basket stood beside the heap of trunks, spitting loudly. It's all right, Crookshanks, Hermione cooed through the wickerwork. I'll let you out in the train. You won't, snapped Ron. What about poor Scabbers, eh? He pointed at his chest, where a large lump indicated that the Scabbers was curled up in his pocket. Mr. Weasley, who had been outside waiting for the ministry cars, stuck his head inside. They're here, he said. Harry, come on. Mr. Weasley marched Harry across the short stretch of pavement toward the first two, toward the first of the two old-fashioned dark green cars, each of which was driven by a furtive-looking wizard wearing a suit of emerald green. In you get, Harry, said Mr. Weasley, glancing up and down the crowded street. Harry got into the back of the car and was shortly joined by Hermione, Ron, and, to Ron's disgust, Percy. The journey to King's Cross was very uneventful compared with Harry's trip on the night bus. The Ministry of Magic cars seemed almost ordinary, though Harry noticed that they could slide through gaps that Uncle Vernon's new company car certainly couldn't have managed. They reached King's Cross with twenty minutes to spare. The Ministry drivers found them trolleys, unloaded their trunks, touched their hats in salute to Mr. Weasley, and drove away, somehow managing to jump ahead of an unmoving line at the traffic lights. Mr. Weasley kept close to Harry's elbow all the way into the station. Right then, he said, glancing around them. Let's do this in pairs, as there are so many of us. I'll go through first with Harry. 
Mr. Weasley strolled toward the barrier between platforms 9 and 10, pushing Harry's trolley and apparently very interested in the intercity 125 that had just arrived at platform 9. With a meaningful look to Harry, he leaned casually against the barrier. Harry imitated him. In a moment, they had fallen sideways through the solid metal into platform nine and three quarters and looked up to see Hogwarts Express, the steam engine. A scarlet steam engine, puffing smoke all over a platform packed with witches and wizards, seeing... There's Penelope, said Percy, smoothing his hair and going pink again. Ginny caught Harry's eye and they both turned away to hide their laughter as Percy strode over to a girl with long, curly hair walking with his chest thrown out so she couldn't miss his shiny new badge. Once the remaining Weasleys and Hermione had joined them, Harry and Ron led the way to the end of the train, past packed compartments, to a carriage that looked quite empty. They loaded their trunks onto it, stowed Hedwig and the Crookshanks, mm, stowed Hedwig and Crookshanks in the luggage rack, then went outside to say goodbye to Mr. and Mrs. Weasley. Mrs. Weasley kissed all of her children, then Hermione, and finally, Harry. He was embarrassed, but really quite pleased, when she gave him an extra hug. "'Do take care, won't you, Harry?' she said as she straightened up, her eyes oddly bright. Then she opened her enormous handbag and said, "'I've made you all sandwiches. There you are, Ron. No, they're not corned beef. Fred? Where's Fred? There you are, dear.' Harry, said Mr. Weasley quietly, come over here for a moment. He jerked his head toward a pillar, and Harry followed him behind it, leaving the others crowded around Mrs. Weasley. There's something I've got to tell you before you leave, said Mr. Weasley, in a tense voice. It's all right, Mr. Weasley, said Harry. I already know. You know? How could you know? I... I heard you and Mrs. Weasley talking last night. I couldn't help hearing, Harry added quickly. Sorry. That's not the way I'd have chosen for you to find out, said Mr. Weasley, looking anxious. No, honestly, it's okay. This way you haven't broken your word to fudge, and I know what's going on. Harry, you must be very scared. I'm not said Harry, sincerely. Really, he added, because Mr. Weasley was looking disbelieving. I'm not trying to be a hero, but seriously, Sirius Black couldn't be worse than Voldemort, can he? Mr. Weasley flinched at the sound of the name, but overlooked it. Harry, I knew that you were, oh, well, made up of stronger stuff than Fudge seems to think. And I'm obviously pleased that you're not scared, but... Arthur, called Mrs. Weasley, who was now shepherding the rest onto the train. Arthur, what are you doing? It's time to go. He's coming, Molly, said Mr. Weasley, but he turned back to Harry and kept talking in a lower and more hurried voice. Listen, I want you to give me your word. Then I'll be a good boy and stay in the castle, said Harry gloomily. Not entirely, said Mr. Weasley, who looked more serious than Harry had ever seen him. Harry, 
Swear to me that you won't go looking for black. Harry stared. What? There was a loud whistle. Guards were walking along the train, slamming all the doors shut. Promise me, Harry, said Mr. Weasley, talking more quickly still, that whatever happens, why would I go looking for someone who I know wants to kill me? said Harry blankly. Swear to me that whatever you might hear... Arthur, quickly! cried Mrs. Weasley. Steam was billowing from the train. It had started to move. Harry ran to the compartment door and Ron threw it open and stood back to let him on. They leaned back out of the window and waved at Mr. and Mrs. Weasley until the train turned a corner and blocked them from view. I need to talk to you in private, Harry muttered to Ron and Hermione as the train picked up speed. Go away, Ginny, said Ron. Oh, that's nice, said Ginny, huffily, and she stalked off. Harry, Ron, and Hermione sat down off the cord. Harry, Ron, and Hermione sat off down the corridor, looking for an empty compartment, but all were full, except for the one at the very end of the train. This one had only one occupant a man sitting fast asleep next to the window. Harry, Ron, and Hermione checked on the threshold. The Hogwarts Express was usually reserved for students, and they had never seen an adult there before, except for the witch who pushed the food cart. The stranger was an extremely shabby... Mm, the stranger was wearing an extremely shabby set of wizard's robes that had been darned, darned in several places. He looked ill and exhausted. Though quite young, his light brown hair was flecked with grey. Who do you reckon he is? Ron hissed as they sat down and slid the door shut, taking the seats farthest away from the window. Professor R.J. Lupin, whispered Hermione at once. How do you know that? It's on his case, she replied, pointing at the luggage rack over the man's head where there was a small, battered case held together with a large quantity of neatly knotted string. The name Professor R. J. Lupin was stamped across one corner in peeling letters. "'Wonder what he teaches,' said Ron, frowning at Professor Lupin's pallid profile. "'That's obvious,' whispered Hermione. "'There's only one vacancy, isn't there?' "'Defense against the Dark Arts.' Harry, Ron, and Hermione had already had two Defense Against the Dark Arts teachers, both of whom had lasted only one year. There were rumors that the job was jinxed. "'Well, I hope he's up to it,' said Ron doubtfully. "'He looks like one good hex would finish him off, doesn't he? Anyway.' He turned to Harry. "'What were you going to tell us?' Harry explained all about Mr. and Mrs. Weasley's argument and the warning that Mr. Weasley had just given him. When he'd finished, Ron looked thunderstruck, and Hermione had her hands over her mouth. She finally lowered them to say, Sirius Black escaped to come after you? Oh, Harry, you have to be really, really careful. Don't go looking for trouble, Harry. I don't go looking for trouble, said Harry, nettled. 
trouble usually finds me. How thick would Harry have to be? Going to look for a nutter that wants to kill him? Said Ron shakily. They were taking the news worse than Harry had expected. Both Ron and Hermione seemed to be much more frightened of Black than he was. No one knows how we got out of Azkaban, said Ron uncomfortably. No one's ever done it before. And he was a top security prisoner too. But they'll catch him, won't they? said Hermione earnestly. I mean, they've got all those muggles looking out for him too. What's that noise? said Ron suddenly. A faint, tinny sort of whistle was coming from somewhere. They looked all around the compartment. It's coming from your trunk, Harry, said Ron, standing up and reaching into the luggage rack. A moment later he had pulled the pocket sneakoscope out from between Harry's robes. It was spitting very fast in the palm of Ron's hand and glowing brilliantly. Is that a sneakoscope? said Hermione interestedly, standing up for a better look. Yeah, mind you, it's a very cheap one, Ron said. It went haywire just as I was tying it to Errol's leg to send it to Harry. Were you doing anything untrustworthy at the time? said Hermione shrewdly. No. Well, I... But I wasn't supposed to be using Errol. You know, he's not really up for the long journeys. But how else, how else am I supposed to get Harry's present to him? Stick it back in the trunk, Harry advised, and the sneakoscope whistled piercingly. Or it will wake him up. He nodded toward Professor Lupin. Ron stuffed the sneakoscope into a particularly horrible pair of Uncle Vernon's old socks, which deadened the sound, then closed the lid of the trunk on it. We could get it checked at Ogsmead, said Ron, sitting back down. There's all that sort of thing in dervish and bangs, magical instruments and stuff. Fred and George told me. Do you know much about Hogsmeade? asked Hermione keenly. I've read it's the only entirely non-muggle. I've read it's the only entirely non-muggle settlement in Britain. Yeah, I think it is, said Ron in an offhand sort of way. But that's not why I want to go. I just want to get inside Honeydukes. What's that? said Hermione. It's this sweet shop, said Ron, a dreamy look coming over his face. They've got everything. Pepper imps that make you smoke at the mouth, and great fat choco balls full of strawberry mousse and clotted cream, and really excellent sugar quills which you can suck on in class and just look like you're thinking about what to write next. But Hogsmeade is a very interesting place, isn't it? Hermione pressed on eagerly. In A Sight of Historical Sorcery, it says that the inn was the headquarters for the 1612 Goblin Rebellion and the Shrieking Shack's supposed to be the most severely haunted building in Britain. And massive sherbet balls that can make you levitate a few inches off the ground while you're sucking on them, said Ron, who was plainly not listening to a word Hermione was saying. Hermione looked around at Harry. Wouldn't it be nice to get out of school for a bit and explore Hogsmeade? I expect it will, said Harry heavily. You'll have to tell me about it when you've found out. What do you mean? said Ron. I can't go. The Dursleys didn't sign my permission form and Fudge wouldn't either. Ron looked horrified. 
you're not allowed to come? But, no, wait, McGonagall, uh, uh, someone will give you permission. Harry gave a hollow laugh. Professor McGonagall, head of Gryffindor House, was very strict. Or we could ask Fred and George, they know every secret passage out of the castle. Ron, said Hermione sharply. I don't think Harry should be sneaking out of school with Black on the loose. Yes, uh, I expect that's what McGonagall will say when I ask for permission, said Harry bitterly. But if we're with him, said Ron spiritedly to Hermione, Black wouldn't dare. Oh, Ron, don't talk rubbish, snapped Hermione. Black's already murdered a whole bunch of people in the middle of a crowded street. Do you really think he's going to worry about attacking Harry just because we're there? She was fumbling with the straps of Crookshanks's basket as she spoke. "'Don't let that thing out!' Ron said, but too late. Crookshanks leapt lightly from the basket, stretched, yawned, and sprang onto Ron's knees. The lump in Ron's pocket trembled, and he shoved Crookshanks angrily away. "'You get out of here!' "'Ron, don't!' said Hermione angrily. Ron was about to answer back when Professor Lupin stirred. They watched him apprehensively, but he simply turned his head the other way, mouth slightly open, and slept on. The Hogwarts Express moved steadily north, and the scenery outside of the window became wilder and darker, while the clouds overhead thickened. People were chasing backward and forward past the door of their compartment. Crookshanks had now settled in an empty seat. His squashed face turned toward Ron, his yellow eyes on Ron's top pocket. At one o'clock, the plump witch with the food cart arrived at the compartment door. Do you think we should wake him up? Ron asked awkwardly, nodding toward Professor Lupin. Looks like he could do with some food. Hermione approached Professor Lupin cautiously. Um, Professor? She said. Excuse me, Professor? He didn't move. Don't worry, dear, said the witch as she handed Harry a large stack of cauldron cakes. If he's hungry when he wakes, I'll be up at the front with the driver. I suppose he is asleep said Ron quietly as the witch slid the compartment door closed. I mean, he hasn't died, has he? No, no, he's breathing, whispered Hermione, taking the cauldron keg Harry passed her. He might not be very good company, but Professor Lupin's presence in their compartment had its uses. Mid-afternoon, just as it had started to rain, blurring the rolling hills outside the window, they heard footsteps in the corridor again, and their three least favorite people appeared at the door. Draco Malfoy, flanked by his cronies, Vincent Crabbe and Gregory Goyle. Draco Malfoy and Harry had been enemies ever since they had met on their very first train journey to Hogwarts. Malfoy, who had a pale, pointed, sneering face, was in Slytherin House. He played Seeker on the Quidditch team the same position that Harry played on the Gryffindor team. Crabbe and Goyle seemed to exist to do Malfoy's bidding. They were both wide and muscly. 
Crabbe was taller, with a pudding-bowl haircut and a very thick neck. Goyle had short, bristly hair and long, gorilla-ish arms. "'Well, look who it is,' said Malfoy, in his usual lazy drawl, pulling open the compartment door. "'Polchy and the weasel!' Crabbe and Goyle chuckled trollishly. "'I heard your father finally got his hands on some gold this summer, Weasley,' said Malfoy. "'Did your mother die of shock?' Ron stood up so quickly he knocked Crookshanks's basket to the floor. Professor Lupin gave a snort. "'Who's that?' said Malfoy, taking an automatic step backward as he spotted Lupin. "'New teacher.' said Harry, who got to his feet, too, in case he needed to hold Ron back. "'What were you saying, Malfoy?' Malfoy's pale eyes narrowed. He wasn't fool enough to pick a fight right under a teacher's nose. "'Come on,' he muttered resentfully to Crabbe and Goyle, and they disappeared. Harry and Ron sat down again, Ron massaging his knuckles. I'm not going to take any crap from Malfoy this year, he said angrily. I mean it. If he makes one more crack about my family, I'm going to get a hold of his head and... Ron made a violent gesture in midair. Ron, hissed Hermione, pointing at Professor Lupin. Be careful. But Professor Lupin was still fast asleep. The rain thickened as the train sped yet further south. The windows were now a solid shimmering gray, which gradually darkened until lanterns flickered on into life. Which gradually darkened until lanterns flickered into life all along the corridors and over the luggage racks. The train rattled, the rain hammered, the wind roared, but still Professor Lupin slept. We must be nearly there, said Ron leaning forward to look past Professor Lupin at the now completely black window. The words had hardly left him when the train started to slow down. Great, said Ron, getting up and walking carefully around Professor Lupin to try and see outside. I'm starving. I want to get to the feast. We can't be there yet, said Hermione, checking her watch. So why are we stopping? The train was getting slower and slower. As the noise of the pistons fell away, the wind and rain sounded louder than ever against the windows. Harry, who was nearest the door, got up to look into the corridor. All along the carriage, heads were sticking curiously out of their compartments. The train came to a stop with a sudden jolt, and distant thuds and bangs told them that luggage had fallen out of their racks. Then, without warning, all the lamps went out and they were plunged into total darkness. "'What's going on?' said Ron's voice from behind Harry. "'Ouch!' gasped Hermione. "'Ron, that was my foot!' Harry felt his way back to his seat. "'Do you think we've broken down?' I "'Don't know.' There was a squeaking sound and Ron saw the... No, there was a squeaking sound and Harry saw the dim black outline of Ron, wiping a patch clean on the window and peering out. 
There's something moving out there, Rand said. I think people are coming aboard. The compartment door suddenly opened and someone fell painfully over Harry's legs. Sorry, sorry, do you know what's going on? Ouch! Sorry. Hello, Neville, said Harry, feeling around in the dark and pulling up Neville by his cloak. Harry, is that you? What's happening? I've no idea. Sit down. There was, a, there was a loud hissing and a yelp of pain. Neville had tried to sit down on Crookshanks. I'm going to go and ask the driver what's going on, came Hermione's voice. Harry felt her pass him, heard the door slid, op slid open again, and then a thud and two squeals of pain. Who's that? Who's that? Ginny? Hermione? What are you doing? I was looking for Ron. Come in and sit down. Not here, said Harry hurriedly. I'm here. Ouch, said Neville. Quiet, said a hoarse voice suddenly. Professor Lupin appeared to have woken up at last. Harry could hear movements in his corner. None of them spoke. There was a soft, crackling noise, and a shivering light filled the compartment. Professor Lupin appeared to be holding a handful of flames. They illuminated his tired, gray face, but his eyes looked alert and wary. Stay where you are, he said in the same hoarse voice, and he got slowly to his feet with a handful of fire held out in front of him. But the door slid slowly open before Lupin could reach it. Standing in the doorway, illuminated by the shivering flames in Lupin's hand, was a cloaked figure that towered to the ceiling. Its face was completely hidden beneath its hood. Harry's eyes darted downward, and what he saw made his stomach contract. There was a hand protruding from the cloak, and it was glistening, grayish, slimy-looking, and scabbed like something dead that had decayed in water. But it was visible only for a split second, as though the creature beneath the cloak sensed Harry's gaze. The hand was suddenly withdrawn into the folds of its black cloak. And then the thing beneath the hood, whatever it was, drew a long, slow, rattling breath, as though it was trying to suck something more than air from its surroundings. An intense cold swept over them all. Harry felt his own breath catch in his chest. The cold went deeper than his skin. It was inside his chest. It was inside his very heart. Harry's eyes rolled up into his head. He couldn't see. He was drowning in cold. There was a rushing in his ears as though of water. He was being dragged downward, the roaring growing louder. And then, from far away, he heard screaming. Terrible, terrified, pleading screams. He wanted to help whoever it was. He tried to move his arms, but he couldn't. A thick white fog was swirling around him, inside him. Harry! Harry! You all right? Someone was slapping his face. What? Terry opened his eyes. There were lanterns above him, and the floor was shaking. 
The Hogwarts Express was moving again, and the lights had come back on. He seemed to have slid out of his seat onto the floor. Ron and Hermione were kneeling next to him, and above them he could see Neville and Professor Lupin watching. Harry felt very sick. When he put up his hand to push his glasses back on, he felt cold sweat on his face. Ron and Hermione heaved him back onto his seat. "'Are you okay?' Ron asked nervously. "'Yeah,' said Harry. Looking quickly toward the door, the hooded thing had vanished. "'What happened? Where's that... oh, that thing? Who screamed?' "'No one screamed,' said Ron, more nervously still. Harry looked around the bright compartment. Ginny and Neville looked back at him, both very pale. But I heard screaming. A loud snap made them all jump. Professor Lupin was breaking an enormous slab of chocolate into pieces. Here, he said to Harry, handing him a particularly big piece. Eat it. It will help. Harry took the chocolate, but didn't eat it. "'What was that thing?' he asked Lupin. "'A Dementor,' said Lupin, who was now giving chocolate to everyone else. "'One of the Dementors of Azkaban.' Everyone stared at him. Professor Lupin crumpled up the empty chocolate wrapper and put it in his pocket. "'Eat,' he repeated. "'It'll help. I need to speak with the driver. Excuse me.' He strolled past Harry and disappeared into the corridor. "'Are you sure that you're okay, Harry?' said Hermione, watching Harry anxiously. "'The Dementor stood there and looked around. I mean, I think it did. I couldn't see its face. And you... you... "'I thought you were having a fit or something.' said Ron, who still looked scared. You were sort of rigid, and you fell out of your seat and started twitching. And Professor Lupin stepped over you and walked toward the Dementor and pulled out his wand, said Hermione, and he said, none of us is hiding Sirius Black under our cloaks. Go. But the Dementor didn't move, so Lupin muttered something and a silvery thing shot out of his wand at it. And it turned around and sort of glided away. It was horrible, said Neville, in a higher voice than usual. Did you feel how cold it got with it, Kybid? I felt weird, said Ron, shifting his shoulders uncomfortably. Like I'd never be cheerful again. Ginny, who was huddled in her corner, looking nearly as bad as Harry felt, gave a small sob. Hermione went over and put a comforting arm around her. "'But didn't any of you fall off of your seats?' said Harry awkwardly. "'No,' said Ron, looking anxiously at Harry again. Ginny was shaking like mad, though.' Harry didn't understand. He felt weak and shivery, as though he were recovering from a bad bout of flu. He also felt the beginnings of shame, and said, with a small smile, 
I haven't poisoned that chocolate, you know. Harry took a bite, and to his great surprise felt warmth spread suddenly to the tips of his fingers and toes. We'll be at Hogwarts in ten minutes, said Professor Lupin. Are you all right, Harry? We'll be at Hogwarts in ten minutes, said Professor Lupin. Are you all right, Harry? Harry didn't ask how Professor Lupin knew his name. Fine, he muttered, embarrassed. They didn't talk much during the remainder of the journey. At long last, the train stopped at Hogsmeade Station, and there was a great scramble to get outside. Owls hooted, cats meowed, and Neville's pet toad croaked loudly. <laughs> and Neville's pet toad croaked loudly from under his hat. It was freezing on the tiny platform. Rain was driving down in icy sheets. First years this way," called the familiar voice. Harry, Ron, and Hermione turned and saw the gigantic outline of Hagrid at the other end of the platform beckoning the terrified-looking new students forward for their traditional journey across the lake. "'All right, you three! Hagrid yelled over the heads of the crowd. They waved at him, but had no chance to speak with him because the mass of people around them was shunting them away along the platform. Harry, Ron, and Hermione followed the rest of the school along the platform, and out onto a rough mud track, where at least a hundred stagecoaches awaited the remaining students. Each pulled, Harry could only assume, by an invisible horse, because when they climbed its side and shut the door, the coach set off all by itself, bumping and swaying in procession. The coach smelled faintly of mold and straw. Harry felt better since the chocolate, but still weak. Ron and Hermione kept looking at him sideways, as though frightened he might collapse again. As the carriage trundled toward a pair of magnificent wrought iron gates, flanked with stone columns topped with winged boars, Harry saw two more towering mm, Harry saw two more towering hooded dementors standing guard on either side. A wave of cold sickness threatened to engulf him again. He leaned back into the lumpy seat and closed his eyes until they had passed the gates. The carriage picked up speed on the long, sloping drive up to the castle. Hermione was leaning out of the tiny window, watching the many turrets and towers draw nearer. At last, the carriage swayed to a halt, and Hermione and Ron got out. As Harry stepped down, a drawling, delighted voice sounded in his ear. You fainted, Potter? Is Longbottom telling the truth? You actually fainted? Malfoy elbowed past Hermione to block Harry's way up the stone steps to the castle, his face gleeful and his pale eyes glinting maliciously. "'Shove off, Ron!' "'I'm Ron.' "'Shove off, Malfoy!' said Ron, whose jaw was clenched. "'Did you faint as well, Weasley?' said Malfoy loudly. "'Did the scary old Dementor frighten you too, Weasley?' "'Is there a problem?' said a mild voice. Professor Lupin had just gotten out of the next carriage. Malfoy gave Professor Lupin an insolent stare, which took in the patches on his robes and the dilapidated suitcase. 
With a tiny hint of sarcasm in his voice, he said, Oh, no, uh, Professor. Then he smirked at Crabbe and Goyle, and led them up the steps into the school. Hermione prodded Ron in the back to make him hurry, and the three of them joined the crowd swarming up the steps, through the giant oak front doors, into the cavernous entrance hall, which was lit with flaming torches, and housed a magnificent marble staircase that led and housed a magnificent marble staircase that led to the upper floors. The door into the great hall stood open at the right, and Harry followed the crowd toward it, but barely glimpsed the enchanted ceiling, which was black and cloudy tonight, when a voice called, Potter, Granger, I want to see you both. Harry and Hermione turned around, surprised. Professor McGonagall, transfiguration teacher and head of Gryffindor House, was calling over the heads of the crowd. She was a stern-looking witch who wore her hair in a tight bun. Her sharp eyes were framed with square spectacles. Harry fought his way over to her with a feeling of foreboding. Professor McGonagall had a way of making him feel he must have done something wrong. There is no need to look so worried. I just want a word in my office, she told them. Move along there, Weasley. Ron stared as Professor McGonagall ushered Harry and Hermione away from the chattering crowd. They accompanied her across the entrance hall, up the marble staircase, and along a corridor. Once they were in her office, a small room with a large, welcoming fire. Once they were in her office, a small room with a large, welcoming fire, Professor McGonagall motioned Harry and Hermione to sit down. She settled herself behind her desk and said abruptly, Professor Lupin sent an owl ahead to say that you were taken ill on the train, Potter. Before Harry could reply, there was a soft knock on the door, and Madame Pomfrey, the nurse, came bustling in. Harry felt himself going red in the face. It was bad enough that he'd passed out, or whatever he had done, without making this all... without everyone making all this fuss. I'm fine, he said. I don't need anything. Oh, it's you, is it? said Madame Pomfrey, ignoring this and bending down to stare closely at him. I suppose you've been doing something dangerous again. It was a Dementor, puppy, said Professor McGonagall. They exchanged a dark look, and Madame Pomfrey clucked disapprovingly. Sitting dementors around a school, she muttered, pushing back Harry's hair and feeling his forehead. He won't be the last who collapses. Yes, he's gone all clammy. Terrible things they are, and the effect they have on people who are already delicate. I'm not delicate, said Harry crossly. Of course you're not, said Madame Pomfrey, absent-mindedly, now taking his pulse. What does he need? said Professor McGonagall crisply. Bed rest? Could he perhaps spend a night in the hospital wing? I'm fine, said Harry, jumping up. The thought of what Draco Malfoy would say if he had to go to the hospital wing was torture. Well, he should have some chocolate at the very least, said Madame Pomfrey, who was now trying to peer into Harry's eyes. 
I've already had some, said Harry. Professor Lupin gave me some. He gave it to all of us. Hmm, did you know? said Madame Pomfrey approvingly. So we finally got a defense against the dark arts teacher who knows his remedies. Are you sure that you're feeling all right, Potter? Professor McGonagall said sharply. Yes, said Harry. Very well. Kindly wait outside while I have a quick word with Miss Granger about her course schedule, then we can go down to the feast together. Harry went back into the corridor with Madame Pomfrey, who left for the hospital wing, muttering to herself. He had to wait only a few minutes, when Hermione emerged, looking very happy about something, followed by Professor McGonagall, and the three of them made their way back down the marble staircase to the Great Hall. It was a sea of pointed black hats. Each of the long house tables was lined with students, their faces glimmering by the light of thousands of candles, which were floating over the tables in mid-air. Professor Flitwick, who was a tiny little wizard with a shock of white hair, was carrying an enchanted hat and a four-legged stool out of the hall. Oh, said Hermione softly, we've missed the sorting. New students at Hogwarts were sorted into houses by trying on the sorting hat, which shouted out the house they were best suited which shouted out the house they were best suited to, Gryffindor, Ravenclaw, Hufflepuff, or Slytherin. Professor McGonagall strode off toward her empty seat at the staff table, and Harry and Hermione set off in the other direction, as quietly as possible, toward the Gryffindor table. People looked around at them as they passed along the back of the hall, and a few of them pointed at Harry. Had the story of his collapsing in front of the Dementor traveled that fast? He and Hermione sat down on either side of Ron, who had saved them seats. "'What was that all about?' he muttered to Harry. Harry started to explain in a whisper, but at that moment the headmaster stood up to speak, and he broke off. Professor Dumbledore, though very old, gave an impression of great energy. He had several feet of, he had several feet of long silver hair and beard half-moon spectacles, and an extremely crooked nose. He was often described as the greatest wizard of the age, but that wasn't why Harry respected him. You couldn't help trusting Albus Dumbledore, and as Harry watched him beaming around at the students, he felt really calm for the first time since the Dementor had entered the train compartment. Welcome, said Dumbledore, the candlelight shimmering on his beard. Welcome to another year at Hogwarts. I have a few things to say to you all, and as one of them is very serious, I think it is best to get it out of the way before you become befuddled by our excellent feast. Dumbledore cleared his throat and continued. As you will all be aware, after their search of the Hogwarts Express, our school is presently playing host to some of the Dementors of Azkaban, are here on Ministry of Magic business. He paused, and Harry remembered what Mr. Weasley had said about Dumbledore not being happy with the Dementors guarding the school. They are stationed at every entrance to the grounds, Dumbledore continued, and while they are with us, I must make it plain that nobody is to leave the school without permission. 
Dementors are not to be fooled by tricks or disguises, or even invisibility cloaks, he added, blandly, and Harry and Ron glanced at each other. It is not in the nature of a Dementor to understand pleading or excuses. I therefore warn each and every one of you to give them no reason to harm you. I look to the prefix, and to our new head boy and girl, to make sure that no student runs afoul of the Dementors, he said. Percy, who was sitting a few seats down from Harry, puffed out his chest again, and stared around impressively. Dumbledore paused again. He looked very seriously around the hall, and nobody moved or made a sound. On a happier note, he continued, I'm pleased to welcome two new teachers to our ranks this year. First, Professor Lupin, who has kindly consented to fill the post of Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher. There was some scattered, rather unenthusiastic applause. Only those who had been in the compartment on the train with Professor Lupin clapped hard, Harry among them. Professor Lupin looked particularly shabby next to all the other teachers in their best robes. "'Look at Snape!' Ron hissed in Harry's ear. Professor Snape, the potions master, was staring along the staff table at Professor Lupin. It was common knowledge that Snape wanted the Defense Against the Dark Arts job, but even Harry, who hated Snape, was startled at the expression twisting his thin, sallow face. It was beyond anger. It was loathing. Harry knew that expression only too well. It was the look Snape wore every time he set eyes on Harry. As to our second new appointment, Dumbledore continued as the lukewarm applause for Professor Lupin died away. Well, I am sorry to tell you that Professor Kettleburn, our care of magical creatures teacher, retired at the end of last year in order to enjoy more time with his remaining limbs. However, I am delighted to say that his place will be filled by none other than Rubius Hagrid, who has decided to take on this teaching job in addition to his gamekeeping duties. Harry, Ron, and Hermione stared at one another, stunned. Then they joined in with the applause, which was tumultuous at the Gryffindor table in particular. Harry leaned forward to see Hagrid, who was ruby red in the face and staring down at his enormous hands, his wide grin hidden in the tangle of his black beard. "'We should have known,' Ron roared, pounding the table. "'Who else would have assigned us a biting book?' Harry, Ron, and Hermione were the last to stop clapping. As Professor Dumbledore started speaking again, they saw Hagrid was wiping his eyes on the tablecloth. "'Well, I think that is everything of importance,' said Dumbledore. "'Let the feast begin!' The golden plates and goblets before them filled suddenly with food and drink. Harry, suddenly ravenous, helped himself to everything he could reach and began to eat. It was a delicious feast. The hall echoed with talk, laughter, and the clatter of knives and forks. Harry, Ron, and Hermione, however, were eager for it to finish so they could talk with Hagrid. They knew how much being made a teacher would mean to him. Hagrid wasn't a fully qualified wizard. He had been expelled from Hogwarts in his third year for a crime he had not committed. It had been Harry, Ron, and Hermione who had cleared Hagrid's name last year.
At long last, when the last morsels of pumpkin tart had melted from the golden platters, Dumbledore gave the word that it was time for them all to go to bed, and they got their chance. Congratulations, Hagrid! Hermione squealed as they reached the teacher's table. All down to you three, said Hagrid, wiping his shining face on his napkin as they looked up at him. I can't believe it. Oh, great man, Dumbledore. Came straight down to my hut after Professor Kettleburn said he'd had enough. So I've always wanted. Overcome with emotion, he buried his face in his napkin, and Professor McGonagall shooed them away. Harry, Ron, and Hermione joined the Gryffindors streaming up the marble staircase, and, very tired now, along more corridors, up more and more stairs, to the hidden entrance to the Gryffindor Tower. A large portrait of a fat lady in a pink dress asked them, Password? Coming through, coming through, Percy called from behind the crowd. The new password is Fortuna Major. Oh, no, said Neville Longbottom sadly. He always had trouble remembering the passwords. Through the portrait hole and across the common room, the girls and boys divided toward their separate staircases. Harry climbed the spiral stair with no thought in his head except how glad he was to be back. They reached their familiar circular dormitory with its five four-poster beds, and Harry, looking around, felt he was home at last. That is the end of chapter five. Which is good because it has been a full hour since we started and we just finished with our chapter. Like I said, only one chapter tonight. This is usually where we would take a quick break. I'd rest my voice a bit, try to hydrate some, and uh, come back for a second chapter. But this is also the time between chapters um, when I normally do a bit of discussion. So if you've got anything you want to talk about, anything at all, I would be delighted to have the discussion with you. Um, and of course, I'm going to do some yammering on my own, but uh, it's my preference that uh, we talk about the things you guys like to talk about. So, get hydrated, get my voice nice and rested up, get my uh, mascot. Uh, my delightful uh, Ukrainian Iron Belly Dragon Egg. It still hasn't showed any signs of uh, starting to hatch. We keep it. We do keep it on top of a candle, but we don't light the candle. We're still not sure where we're going to keep it. We um, we've got two cats, and they're really enough of a responsibility right now. And I would fear that a Ukrainian Iron Belly would potentially consume them. Uh, which one of them? I guess I'd be fine with, and the other one not so much. So we're going to hold off on hatching it for now. Keep it away from the flame. It is kind of close to the window. And it does get pretty hot here. I don't know. We'll try to stay safe. Alright, now. From this chapter, I want to introduce, introduce you guys to my favorite character in the books. This is Remus Lupin. 
I obviously can't go into too much detail about why I like him so much, but uh, just for the sake of going forward, keep it in mind, I love this guy. I think if I were going to be a teacher at Hogwarts, I should say if I were going to be if I were going to be cast as any character from the Hogwarts universe as it exists right now, I would really want to be Lupin. And I think I could do a pretty good job of pulling it off, too. Um, yeah, so we'll get into more of that later. Um, I also want to talk about uh, these Dementors. Um, I think we're going to talk about them more as it goes on later. Um, but yeah, I guess I just wanted to give you guys a quick uh, notification, I guess, that uh, we're going to be talking about them more in the future. Um, they represent something really specific to um, J.K. Rowling as she wrote these stories, and they represent something really important to her and to me and to a lot of people. So we're going to talk about them later on. Um, and for right now, uh, I don't know what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about whatever you want to talk about. Um, it is a great feeling, isn't it, to be somewhere where it feels like your home. And Harry's had a rough summer. <laughs> um, the first part of it started out as sort of standard rough, and then after that, it quickly became uh, unusual rough. He had the run-in with his aunt, you know, and it's a particularly nasty woman. I know we talked about her before. Just, just a cruel person. And I don't know if we talked about just the idea that that sort of, that sort of just vindictive um, targeted bullying behavior, it never gets anyone anywhere. And so regardless of which side of that any person may be on, whether whether this hypothetical person is on the giving end or the receiving end of such bullying, it really never gets anyone anywhere. Um, but uh, yeah, Harry was, Harry, uh, Harry decided to run off. And in this uh, in this panic of his, he had a particularly rough go. Luckily, the Wizarding World provided for him. He was able to get on the night bus and go off into the world. But man, it would be a tough thing to be his age, which this is book three, which means he's in his third year at Hogwarts, which puts him in eighth grade. So imagine between being between your seventh and eighth grade year and thinking, all right, um, I'm in so much trouble that I have to go out into the world by myself now. I'm on the run. My family doesn't want me. The government is going to be after me. It sounds like the it sounds like the the premise of a really interesting novel about an adult but for a kid that is a nightmare. And I've never been there specifically, but there have been moments where it just feels like the world is crashing down around my ears. Um but Harry gets reconnected with his friends, and as always, they take excellent care of him. Um, I think it would be a... I, I mentioned this before we before we started this chapter. I think it would be an excellent two... I think it was about two weeks um, at uh, in Diagon Alley at the Leaky Cauldron, just staying there and um, being able to wander around by yourself... Uh, obviously, Harry has enough money to make that happen for him while he's there, but just being able to look around, really take in all the sights, 
um, you know, meet all the different people. Because I imagine when you're rushing through someplace like that, for the first time, as Harry did with Hagrid, um, it obviously would have just absolutely blown blown his mind. And it would have done the same to me. Um, but I really like meeting new people. And so it would have been fascinating for me, I think, to go back to that place, which Harry really only visits once a year, and have time to meet people, meet all these fascinating people that I first saw and first, uh, that first introduced me to this preposterous, fantastical magic world. I think that would probably be one of my favorite parts of that entire year. Uh, it would certainly make for an excellent birthday. Um, now, unfortunately, Harry doesn't get a chance to connect with his friends until a little bit later on, but having a place where you don't have to worry about the Dursleys and, uh, you know, having the weight off of his shoulders that he's not really in trouble with the ministry. It would have been a real nice two weeks. All right. It's about time to cut the stream down. Um, as usual... I'm going to be on. Uh, I'm going to be on stream for the next uh, five or so minutes, probably, and then afterward, we're going to take this discussion over to Instagram. I do all my updates there. It's at Sidecar Stories, all one word on Instagram. And for anybody who doesn't know what this is, I'm Sam, and this is Sidecar Stories. Uh, this is stream number twenty-one. We are well into book three. Didn't realize we were going to get this far, but I'm so excited we have, and I intend to stick it through to the end. Um, I'm getting better at streaming every time I do it. Every single time I do it, I'm getting better at it. And uh, this week, you may have noticed something uh, <laughs> uh, something to the opposite of that effect, which is that I've got a, I've got a, an issue with my tongue. It's just that canker sore, but it's... It's made it interesting to do a lot of reading. Uh, I think I, I think I plowed on just fine. Talio. But I look forward to uh, reading more about Professor Lupin in the future. I look forward to reading more with you next week. Same day of the week. Same time. Next Sunday at 6 p.m. I am looking forward to it. All right, so yeah. If you want any of my updates, at Sidecar Stories on Instagram. And it has been a lovely stream. I'll see y'all next week. Have a good one. Hello, wonderful people. How's it going? My name is Sam, and this is Sidecar Stories. And um, I'm barely set up today. That's where I'm at. How are you doing? Gotta get my... Uh, gotta get my lighting setup worked back out, because... As you can see, it looks like some sort of star has exploded behind me. That's not that's not the look, you know what I mean? The look is nice, even coverage so that the uh the background disappears and I look like I really am just a disembodied head sitting on a bookshelf. Um with my skin a nice beautiful tomato paste red. That's the look right there. How's it going, you guys? Rachel, hey -o! Good to see you. As you can see, I've uh, changed the look up just slightly, just ever so slightly. Um, today is going to be another 
shorter stream. It's still not going to be super short, um, but it's a long chapter, so I'm not going to do two today because it would put me at about nine o'clock to finish up, which, I mean, I love doing this, but got to sign off at some point. Got stuff to do. I got to make food. Got to eat food. <laughs> I'm not busy. I'm just sort of a, an animal, like a raccoon is busy. Um, today is chapter six of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Um, this chapter is called Talons and Tea Leaves, if I can read off my ticker tape there. Oh, I haven't done my, I haven't done my quick little notification on Instagram. Um, for everyone who's been here, you already know what I'm about to say. For anyone who doesn't, uh, usually when I'm on my game, I do all my Instagram, mm, take that again. I do all my updates on Instagram, uh, at Sidecar Stories, all one word, um, but yeah, let me just put this up there to make sure that people know that I'm streaming. Let's see. Get my hashtags on there so I'm I'm easily discovered. And we're up. Okay, so also for people who know how this works. Uh, I'm about to go into my, well, I guess for people who don't know how this works, I'm about to go into my quick summary of what we read last week, chapter 5. Um, if, while I'm talking, you've got anything you want to talk about from last chapter, from earlier in the book, from previous books, from books coming later on, go ahead and put it in chat. I'd love to talk about it. Uh, any people we meet, any places we go, any things we see, go ahead and put it in chat. And uh, we'll talk about them. That is also true during the chapter, but I'll revisit that in a second. Okay, let's do this. Last week on Sidecar Stories, chapter 5, um, we're hanging out with the Weasleys. We arrive at school. Um, there's been a lot of discussion uh, in the Wizarding World about a guy named Sirius Black. I think we, we got our big sort of clue in to what he was all about um, in chapter four. Um, but yeah, he's an escaped wizarding convict. He's uh, kind of one of the baddest guys of them all. Um, basically, the, the, the rumors are that he blew up a street full of muggles. He killed a wizard and 13 muggles in the process and uh, just generally a real bad dude as it goes. Um, so the the Weasleys sort of clue Harry in on that, and Harry boards the uh, Hogwarts Express with them and Hermione. They get on the train and get into a car with a rather shabby looking man who's asleep next to his suitcase. Doesn't look like he's very well kept, but he's an adult, he's not a student. Um, and based on the clues from his luggage and from, um, you know, just their knowledge that the school is in need of another defense against the dark arts teacher, uh, they surmise that this is R.J. Lupin, Professor R.J. Lupin, the new defense against the dark arts teacher. I don't want to get too much into why yet, but he is my favorite character. I feel you should know that. So Lupin's here. They're on the train. Having a, you know, having a bicker amongst themselves. Malfoy shows up with his cronies and causes trouble as per usual. 
there he is with his uh, troglodytic hench and the train suddenly stops as the train stops and everything goes dark a creature enters the train car this is a dementor a hooded figure with what looks like dead decaying skin on its hands and it approaches Harry and out of everyone in the car they're all panicking but it goes straight to Harry and Harry passes out he hears screaming while he's passed out um, he comes to with Professor Lupin standing over um, Professor Lupin warded off this thing which he learns is a Dementor and um, after giving Harry some chocolate to make him feel better Professor Lupin goes off elsewhere into the car leaving the students to discuss the thing themselves and they they all kind of confirm like it it sort of felt like I don't know like they would never be happy again um, just that's the that's the aura that this creature gives off horrible thing to encounter they arrive at school it is a dark and stormy night which if it weren't for all the darn Dementors would be just incredibly cozy and pleasant in my book and uh, it turns out they've missed the initial feast because um, Harry and Hermione are summoned to McGonagall's office. They have a quick conversation about, you know, what are the Dementor? Why are they? What are the Dementors? Mentors or Dementor? I think it's Dementors. I think that's how they title it. Um, and after that conversation with Harry, um, McGonagall holds Hermione for another conversation that we don't get to see. Just about her classes, it seems. And that is where we're at. It seems that uh, the, the Slytherins, guided by Malfoy as ever, have picked up on Harry's little encounter with the Dementors on the train, and they make a whole big deal out of it. What are you going to do? I'll tell you exactly what you're going to do. You're going to ignore them. Now, that is our summary for the previous chapter, and I'm about to get started. So, as I said before, if while I'm reading, anyone has anything they'd like to talk about, people, things, uh, themes motifs, alliteration. I wish I'd been able to alliterate something. I can't even speak, so that's not going to happen. Um, go ahead and put it in chat. I'd love to talk about it. Now. Um, yeah, and if, if, uh, if it comes up and I think I can talk about it in just a moment, I will talk about it immediately. If not, I'll wait for a good breaking point, either at the end of the chapter or at one of the chapter breaks, and we'll talk about it then. All right, I'm stoked. Let's get into it. I'm always stoked. Y'all know I love this now, right? At this point, y'all gotta know I love it. All right, here we go. Chapter six, talons and tea leaves. When Harry, Ron, and Hermione entered the great hall for breakfast the next day, the first thing they saw was Draco Malfoy who seemed to be entertaining a large group of Slytherins with a very funny story. As they passed, Malfoy did a ridiculous impression of a swooning fit, and there was a roar of laughter. "'Ignore him,' said Hermione, who was right behind Harry. "'Just ignore him. It's not worth it.' "'Hey, Potter!' shrieked Pansy Parkinson, a Slytherin girl with a face like a pug. "'I've got a face like a pug, too.' Potter, the Dementors are coming! Potter! Woo! 
Harry dropped into a seat at the Gryffindor table, next to George Weasley. New third-year course schedules, said George, passing them over. What's up with you, Harry? Mile four, said Ron, sitting down on George's other side and glaring over at the Slytherin table. George looked up in time to see Malfoy pretending to faint with terror again. That little git, he said calmly. It wasn't so cocky last night when the Dementors were down at our end of the train. Came running into our compartment, didn't he, Fred? <laughs> Nearly wet himself, said Fred, with a contemptuous glance at Malfoy. I wasn't too happy myself, said George. The terrible things, those Dementors. Sort of freeze up your insides, don't they? said Fred. Well, you didn't pass out, though, did you? said Harry in a low voice. Forget it, Harry, said George bracingly. Dad had to go out to Azkaban one time, remember Fred? He said it was the worst place he'd ever been. He came back all weak and shaking. They suck the happiness out of a place, Dementors. Most of the prisoners go mad in there. Anyway, we'll see how happy Malfoy looks after our first Quidditch match, said Fred. Gryffindor versus Slytherin. First game of the season, remember? The only time Harry and Malfoy had faced each other in a Quidditch match, Malfoy had definitely come off worse. Feeling slightly more cheerful, Harry helped himself to sausages and fried tomatoes. Hermione was examining her new schedule. Oh good, we're starting some new subjects today! She said happily. Hermione, said Ron, frowning as he looked over her shoulder. They've messed up your schedule. Look, they've got you down for about ten subjects a day. There isn't enough time. I'll manage. I've fixed it all with Professor McGonagall. <laughs> but, no, look, said Ron, laughing. See, this morning, nine o'clock divination, and underneath, nine o'clock muggle studies. And, Ron leaned closer into the schedule, disbelieving. Look, under that, Erethmancy, nine o'clock. I mean, I know you're good, Hermione, but <laughs> no one's that good. How are you supposed to be in three classes at once? Don't be silly, said Hermione shortly. Of course I won't be in three classes at once. Well then, pass the marmalade, said Hermione. But... Uh, Ron, what is it to you if my schedule's a bit full? Hermione snapped. I told you, I fixed it all. <clears throat> Excuse me. Hermione's a little tough on the warm-up. I told you, I fixed it all with Professor McGonagall. Just then, Hagrid entered the Great Hall. He was wearing his long moleskin overcoat and was absent-mindedly swinging a dead polecat from one enormous hand. All right! he said eagerly, pausing on the way to the staff table. You're in my first ever lesson! Right after lunch! I've been up since five getting everything ready. Hope it's okay. <laughs> Me, a teacher. Honestly. He grinned broadly at them and headed off up to the staff table, still swinging the polecat. I wonder what he's been getting ready, said Ron, with a note of anxiety in his voice. The hall was starting to empty as people headed off. The hall was starting to empty as people headed off toward their first lesson. Ron checked his course schedule. We better go. Look, divinations at the top of the North Tower. 
It'll take us ten minutes to get up there. They finished their breakfasts hastily, and said goodbye to Fred and George, and walked back through the hall. As they passed the Slytherin table, Malfoy did yet another impression of a fainting fit. The shouts of laughter followed Harry into the entrance hall. The journey through the castle to the North Tower was a long one. Two years at Hogwarts hadn't taught them everything about the castle, and they had never been inside the North Tower before. There's got to be a shortcut, Ron panted as they climbed their seventh long staircase and emerged on a familiar landing, where there was nothing but a large painting of a bare stretch of grass hanging on the stone wall. I think it's this way, said Hermione, peering down the empty passage to the right. It can't be, said Ron. Not south. Look, you can still see a bit of the lake out of that window. Harry was watching the painting. A fat, dappled grey pony had just ambled onto the grass and was grazing nonchalantly. Harry was used to the subjects of Hogwarts paintings moving around and leaving their frames to visit one another, but he always enjoyed watching it. A moment later, a short, squat knight in a suit of armor clanked into the picture after his pony. By the look of the grass stains on his metal knees, he had just fallen off. Aha! he yelled, seeing Harry, Ron, and Hermione. What villains are these that trespass upon my private lands? Come to scorn at my fall, perchance. Draw, you knaves, you dogs! They watched in astonishment as the little knight tugged his sword out of its scabbard and began brandishing it violently, hopping up and down in rage. But the sword was too long for him. A particularly wild swing made him overbalance, and he landed face down in the grass. "'Are you all right?' said Harry, moving closer to the picture. "'Get back, you scurvy braggart! Back, you rogue!' The knight seized the sword again and used it to push himself back up, but the blade sunk deeply into the grass, and, though he pulled with all his might, he couldn't get it out again. Finally, he had to flop back down into the grass and push up his visor to mop his sweating face. "'Listen,' said Harry, taking advantage of the knight's exhaustion. We're looking for the North Tower. You don't know the way, do you? A quest! The knight's rage seemed to vanish instantly. He clanked to his feet and shouted, Come, follow me, dear friends, and we shall find our goal, or else shall perish bravely in the charge. He gave the sword another fruitless tug, tried and failed to mount the fat pony, gave up, and cried, on foot then, good sirs and gentle lady. On, onward. And he ran, clanking loudly, into the left side of the frame and out of sight. They hurried after him along the corridor, following the sound of his armor. Every now and then they spotted him running through a picture ahead. Beast out of heart, the worst is yet to come, yelled the knight, and they saw him reappear in front of an alarmed group of women in crinolines whose picture hung on the wall of a narrow spiral staircase. Puffing loudly, Harry, Ron, and Hermione climbed the tightly spiraling steps, getting dizzier and dizzier, until at last they heard the murmur of voices above them, and knew that they had reached the destination. Whoa, 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 whoa! That was a car wreck. You can't combine the words destination and classroom, just for the record. Um, by the way, Rachel? 
How's the stream looking? Let me know. Puffing loudly, Harry, Ron, and Hermione climbed the tightly spiraling steps, getting dizzier and dizzier, until at last they heard the murmur of voices above them and knew they had reached the classroom. Farewell! cried the knight, popping his head into a painting of some sinister-looking monks. Farewell, my comrades-in-arms! If ever you have the need of a noble heart and steely sinew, call upon Sir Cadogan! <laughs> yeah, we'll call on you, muttered Ron as the knight disappeared. If we ever need someone mental. They climbed the last few steps and emerged onto a tiny landing, where most of the class was already assembled. There were no doors off this landing, but Ron nudged Harry and pointed at the ceiling, where there was a circular trap door with a brass plaque on it. Sybil Trelawney, divination teacher. Harry read. How are we supposed to get up there? As though in answer to his question, the trapdoor suddenly opened, and a silvery ladder descended right at Harry's feet. Everyone got quiet. After you, said Ron, grinning, so Harry climbed the ladder first. Rachel says the stream's looking good. Excellent. Thank you very much. He emerged into the strangest-looking classroom he had ever seen. In fact, it didn't look like a classroom at all. More like a cross between someone's attic and an old-fashioned tea shop. At least twenty small, circular tables were crammed inside it, all surrounded by chintz armchairs and fat little poofs. Everything was lit with a dim, crimson light, the curtains at the windows were all closed, and many lamps were draped with dark red scarves. It was stiflingly warm, and the fire that was burning under the crowded mantelpiece was giving off a heavy, sickly sort of perfume as it heated a large copper kettle. The shelves running around the circular walls were crammed with dusty-looking feathers, stubs of candles, and many packs of tattered playing cards, countless silvery crystal balls, and a huge array of teacups. Ron appeared at Harry's shoulder as the class assembled around them, all talking in whispers. "'Where is she?' Ron said. A voice came suddenly out of the shadows, a soft, misty sort of voice. "'Welcome,' it said. "'How nice to see you all in the physical world at last!' Harry's immediate impression was of a large, glittering insect. Professor Trelawney moved into the firelight, and they saw that she was very thin. Her large glasses magnified her eyes to several times their natural size, and she was draped in a gauzy, spangled shawl. Innumerable chains and beads hung around. Let's get reconnected, and we can commence. All right, there we go. I'm going to rewind just a little bit to uh, make sure nothing got missed. All right.
Sit, my children, sit, she said, and they all climbed awkwardly into armchairs or sank into poofs. Harry, Ron, and Hermione sat themselves around the same round table. Welcome to divination, said Professor Trelawney, who had seated herself in a winged armchair in front of the fire. My name is Professor Trelawney. You may not have seen me here before. I find that descending too often into the hustle and bustle of the main school clouds my inner eye. Nobody said anything to this extraordinary pronouncement. Professor Trelawney delicately rearranged her shawl and continued. So you have chosen to study divination, the most difficult of all magical arts. I must warn you at the outset that if you do not have the sight, there is very little I will be able to teach you. Books can only take you so far in this field. At these words, both Harry and Ron glanced, grinning, at Hermione, who looked startled at the news that books wouldn't be much help in this subject. All right, we have to reconnect again. Bear with me. <laughs> Excellent. At these words, both Harry and Ron glanced, grinning, at Hermione, who looked startled at the news that books wouldn't be much help in this subject. Many witches and wizards, talented though they are in the area of loud bangs and smells and sodden disappearings, are yet unable to penetrate the veiled mysteries of the future, Professor Trelawney went on, her enormous gleaming eyes moving from face to nervous face. It is a gift granted to few. You, boy, she said suddenly to Neville, who almost toppled off his poof. Is your grandmother well? Um, I think so, said Neville, tremulously. I wouldn't be so sure if I were you, dear, said Professor Trelawney, the firelight glinting on her long emerald earrings. Neville gulped. Professor Trelawney continued placidly. We will be covering the basic methods of divination this year. The first term will be devoted to reading the tea leaves. Next term we shall progress to palmistry. By the way, my dear, she shot suddenly at Parvati Patil, beware a red-headed man. Parvati gave a startled look at Ron, who was right behind her, and edged her chair away from him. In the second term, Professor Trelawney went on, we shall progress to the crystal ball, if we have finished with fire omens, that is. Unfortunately, classes will be disrupted in February by a nasty bout of flu. I myself will lose my voice. And around Easter, one of our number will leave us forever. A very tense silence followed this pronouncement. But Professor Trelawney seemed unaware of it. I wonder, dear, she said to Lavender Brown, who was nearest and shrank back in her chair, if you could pass me the largest silver teapot. Lavender, looking relieved, stood up, 
took an enormous teapot from the shelf and put it down on the table in front of Professor Trelawney. Thank you, my dear. Incidentally, that thing that you're dreading, it will happen on Friday, the 16th of October. Lavender trembled. Now I want you all to divide up into pairs, collect a teacup from the shelf. Come to me, and I will fill it. Then sit down and drink. Drink until only the dregs remain. Swill these around the cup three times with the left hand, then turn the cup upside down on its saucer. Wait for the last of the tea to drain away, then give your cup to your partner to read. You will interpret the patterns using pages five and six of Unfogging the Future. I shall move among you, helping and instructing. Oh, and dear, she caught Neville by the arm as he made to stand up. After you've broken your first cup, would you be so kind as to select one of the blue-patterned ones? I'm rather attached to the pink. Sure enough, Neville had so... Sure enough, Neville had no sooner reached the shelf of teacups when there was a tinkle of breaking china. Professor Trelawney swept over to him, holding a dustpan and a brush, and said, One of the blue ones, then, dear, if you wouldn't mind. Thank you. When Harry and Ron had their teacups filled, they hurried back to their table and tried to drink the scalding tea quickly. They swilled the dregs around, as Professor Trelawney had instructed, then drained the cups and swapped them. <sighs> right, said Ron, as they both opened their books at pages five and six. What can you see in mine? A load of soggy brown stuff, said Harry. The heavily perfumed smoke in the room was making him feel sleepy and stupid. Broaden your minds, my dears, and allow your eyes to see past the mundane. Professor Trelawney cried through the gloom. Harry tried to pull himself together. Right, you've got a crooked sort of cross? He consulted unfogging the future. That means you're going to have trials and suffering? Sorry about that. But there's a thing that could be a sun. Hang on, that means great happiness, so you're going to suffer, but be very happy? <laughs> you need your inner eye tested if you ask me, said Ron, and they both had to stifle their laughs as Professor Trelawney gazed in their direction. <sighs> My turn. Ron peered into Harry's teacup, his forehead wrinkled with the effort. There's a blob like... Uh, it's a bit like a bowler hat, he said. Maybe you're going to work for the Ministry of Magic? He turned the teacup the other way up. But this way it looks more like a unicorn. Unicorn. <laughs> Hold on. But this way it looks more like an acorn. What's that? He scanned his copy of Unfogging the Future. A windfall. Unexpected gold. Excellent. You can lend me some. And there's a thing here. He turned the cup up again. That looks like an animal. Yeah, like if that was its head, it looks like a hippo. No, a sheep! Professor Trelawney whirled around as Harry let out a snort of laughter. 
Let me see that, my dear, she said reprovingly to Ron, sweeping over and snatching Harry's cup from him. Everyone went quiet to watch. Professor Trelawney was staring into the teacup, rotating it counterclockwise. The falcon, my dear, you have a deadly enemy. But everyone knows that, said Hermione in a loud whisper. Professor Trelawney stared at her. Well, they do, said Hermione. Everybody knows about Harry and knew you know who. Harry and Ron stared at her with a mixture of amazement and admiration. Admiration, excuse me. Harry and Ron stared at her with a mixture of amazement and admiration. They had never heard Hermione speak to a teacher like that before. Professor Trelawney chose not to reply. She lowered her huge eyes to Harry's cup again and continued to turn it. The club, an attack! Dear, dear, this is not a happy cup. I thought that was a bowler hat, said Ron sheepishly. The skull, danger in your path, my dear. Everyone was staring, transfixed, at Professor Trelawney, who gave the cup a final turn, gasped, and then screamed. There was another tinkle of breaking china. Neville had smashed his second cup. Professor Trelawney sank into a vacant armchair, her glittering hand at her heart, and her eyes closed. My dear boy, my poor dear boy, no, it is kinder not to say, no, don't ask me. What is it, Professor? said Dean Thomas at once. Everyone had got to their feet, and slowly they crowded around Harry and Ron's table pressing close to Professor Trelawney's chair to get a good look at Harry's cup. My dear! Professor Trelawney's huge eyes opened dramatically. You have the grim! The what? said Harry. He could tell that he wasn't the only one who didn't understand. Dean Thomas shrugged at him, and Lavender Brown looked puzzled but nearly everybody else clapped their hands to their mouths in horror. "'The Grimm, my dear! The Grimm!' cried Professor Trelawney, who looked shocked that Harry didn't understand. "'The giant spectral dog that haunts churchyards! My dear boy, it is an omen, the worst omen of death!' Harry's stomach lurched that dog on the cover of Death Omens, in Flourish and Blots, the dog in the shadows of Magnolia Crescent. Lavender Brown clapped her hands to her mouth, too. Everyone was looking at Harry, everyone except Hermione, who had gotten up and moved around to the back of Professor Trelawney's chair. I don't think it looks like a grim, she said flatly. Professor Trelawney surveyed Hermione with mounting dislike. "'You'll forgive me for saying so, my dear, but I perceive very little aura around you. Very little receptivity to the resonances of the future.' Seamus Finnegan was tilting his head from side to side. "'It looks like a grim if you do this,' he said with his eyes almost shut, 
but it looks more like a donkey from here, he said, leaning to the left. When you've all decided... When you've all finished deciding whether or not I'm going to die, said Harry, taking even himself by surprise. Now nobody seemed to want to look at him. I think we will leave the lesson here for today, said Professor Trelawney in her mistiest voice. Yes, please, pack away your things. Silently, the class took their teacups back to Professor Trelawney, packed away their books, and closed their bags. Even Ron was avoiding Harry's eyes. Until we meet again, said Professor Trelawney faintly, fair fortune be yours. Oh, and dear, she pointed at Neville, you'll be late next time, so mind you work extra hard to catch up. Harry, Ron, and Hermione descended Professor Trelawney's ladder and the winding stair in silence, then set off for Professor McGonagall's transfiguration lesson. It took them so long to find her classroom that, early as they had left divination, they were only just in time. Harry chose a seat at the back of the room, feeling as though he were sitting in a very bright spotlight. The rest of the class kept shooting furtive glances at him as though he were about to drop dead at any moment. He hardly heard what Professor McGonagall was telling them about animagi, wizards who could transform at will into animals, and even... and wasn't even watching when she transformed herself in front of their eyes into a tabby cat with spectacle markings around her eyes. "'Really, what has got into you all today?' said Professor McGonagall, turning back into herself with a faint pop and staring around at them. "'Not that it matters, but... That's the first time that my transformation's not got applause from the class. Everybody's heads turned toward Harry again, but nobody spoke. Then Hermione raised her hand. Please, Professor, we've just had our first divination class, and we were reading the tea leaves, and... Mm, of course, said Professor McGonagall, suddenly frowning. There is no need to say more, Miss Granger. Tell me, which of you will be dying this year? Everyone stared at her. Me, said Harry, finally. I see, said Professor McGonagall, fixing Harry with her beady eyes. Then you should know, Potter, that Sybil Trelawney has predicted the death of one student a year since she arrived at this school. None of them has died yet. Seeing death omens is her favorite way of greeting a new class, if it were not for the fact that I never speak ill of my colleagues. Professor McGonagall broke off, and they saw that her nostrils had gone white. She went on, more calmly. Divination is one of the most imprecise branches of magic. I shall not conceal from you that I have very little patience with it. True seers are very rare, and Professor Trelawney... Uh, she stopped again and then said, in a very matter-of-fact tone, "'You look in excellent health to me, Potter, so you will excuse me if I don't let you off of homework today. I assure you that if you do die, you need not hand it in.' Hermione laughed. Harry felt a little bit better. 
It was harder to feel scared of a lump of tea leaves, away from the dim red light and fuddling perfume of Professor Trelawney's classroom. Not everyone was convinced, however. Ron still looked worried, and Lavender whispered, But what about Neville's cup? When the Transfiguration class had finished, they joined the crowd, thundering toward the Great Hall for lunch. Ron, cheer up, said Hermione, pushing a dish of stew toward him. You heard what Professor McGonagall said. So, quick note. When I read Hermione, I made it pretty clear that she talks pretty fast, but I've noticed that every time I say, like, a teacher's name or any particularly long word, it gets all muddled up, so maybe we slow that down a bit. Ron spooned Stu onto his plate and picked up his fork, but didn't start. Harry, he said, in a low, serious voice. You haven't seen a great black dog anywhere, have you? Yeah, I have, said Harry. I saw one the night that I left the Dursleys. Ron let his fork fall with a clatter. Probably a stray, said Hermione calmly. Ron looked at Hermione as though she had gone mad. Hermione! If Harry's seen a grim, that's... Uh, that's bad, he said. My... my Uncle Billius saw one, and he died twenty-four hours later. Coincidence, said Hermione airily, pouring herself some pumpkin juice. You don't know what you're talking about, said Ron, starting to get angry. Grimm's scared the living daylights out of most wizards. Well, there you are, then said Hermione, in a superior tone. They see the Grimm, and they die of fright. The Grimm's not an omen, it's the cause of death. And Harry's still with us because he's not stupid enough to see one and think, well, right, I'd better kick the bucket then. Ron mouthed wordlessly at Hermione, who opened her bag, took out her new arithmancy book, and propped it open against the juice jug. I think divination seems very woolly, she said, searching for her page. A lot of guesswork, if you ask me. There was nothing woolly about the grim in that cup, said Ron, hotly. You didn't seem quite so confident when you were telling Harry it was a sheep, said Hermione, coolly. Professor Trelawney said you don't have the right aura. You just don't like being bad at something for a change. He had touched a nerve. Hermione slammed her new arithmancy book down on the table, so hard that bits of meat and carrot flew everywhere. If being good at divination means I have to pretend to see death omens in a lump of tea leaves, I'm not sure I'll be studying it much longer. That lesson was absolute rubbish compared with my arithmancy class. She snatched up her bag and stalked away. Ron frowned after her. What's she talking about? he said to Harry. She hasn't been to an arithmancy class yet. <whistles> Harry was pleased to get out of the castle after lunch. Yesterday's rain had cleared. The sky was a clear, pale grey, and the grass was springy and damp underfoot as they set off for the first ever Care of Magical Creatures class. Ron and Hermione weren't speaking to each other. Harry walked beside them in silence as they went down the sloping lawns to Hagrid's hut at the edge of the Forbidden Forest. 
It was only when he spotted three only too familiar backs ahead of them that they realized they must be having these lessons with the Slytherins. Malfoy was talking animatedly to Crabbe and Goyle, who were chortling. Harry was quite sure he knew what they were talking about. Hagrid was waiting for them at the door of his hut. He stood in his moleskin overcoat, with Fang the Boarhound at his heels, looking impatient to start. Come on now, get a move on, he called as the class approached. Got a real treat for you today. Great lesson coming up. Uh, everyone here? Right, follow me. For one nasty moment, Harry thought that Hagrid was going to lead them into the forest. Harry had had enough unpleasant experiences in there to last a lifetime. However, Hagrid strolled off around the edge of the trees, and five minutes later they found themselves outside of a kind of paddock. There was nothing in there. Everyone gather round the fence here, he called. That's it. Make sure you can see. Now, first thing you is open your books. How? said the cold, drawling voice of Draco Malfoy. Eh? said Hagrid. How do we open our books? Malfoy repeated. He took out his copy of The Monster Book of Monsters, which he had bound shut with a length of rope. Other people took out theirs, too. Some, like Harry, had belted their books shut. Others had crammed them inside tight bags or clamped them together with binder clips. Just a moment. Quick reconnect. Bear with me. It'll be ten more seconds. Please ignore the faint Weasley kitchen sounds behind. All right. How do we open our books? Malfoy repeated. He took out his copy of The Monster Book of Monsters, which he had bound shut with a length of rope. Other people took out theirs, too. Some, like Harry, had belted their books together. Others had crammed them inside tight bags or clamped them together with binder clips. Hasn't... Uh, hasn't anyone been able to open their books? said Hagrid, looking crestfallen. The class all shook their heads. You gotta stroke them, said Hagrid, as though this was the most obvious thing in the world. Look! He took Hermione's copy and ripped off the spellotape that bound it. The book tried to bite, but Hagrid ran a forefinger down its spine, and the book shivered then fell open and lay quiet in his hand. Oh, how silly we've all been, Hermione. Nope, <laughs> Malfoy sneered. We should have stroked them. Why didn't we guess? I thought... I thought they were funny, Hagrid said uncertainly to Hermione. Oh, tremendously funny, 
said Malfoy. Really witty, giving us books that try to rip our hands off. Shut up, Malfoy, said Harry quietly. Hagrid was looking downcast, and Harry wanted Hagrid's first lesson to be a success. Uh, right then, said Hagrid, who seemed to have lost his thread. So, so you you got your books, and, and, um, now you need the, uh, magical creatures. Yeah. So I'll go and get them. Hang on. He strode away from them into the forest and out of sight. God, this place is going to the dogs, said Malfoy loudly. That oaf teaching classes. My father will have a fit when I tell him. Shut up, Malfoy, Harry repeated. Careful, Potter, there's a Dementor behind you. Ooh! squealed Lavender Brown, pointing toward the opposite side of the paddock. Rachel says, it's a little bit glitchy. Yeah, that's what it's looking like on my end. Not enough to stop. We're going to plow through. I'm not going to say it's improved, because then it will tank again, but if it were to improve, I wouldn't say anything. There you go. That uh, Figure that one out. Trotting toward them were a dozen of the most bizarre-looking creatures Harry had ever seen. They had the bodies, hind legs, and tails of horses, but the front legs, wings, and heads of what seemed to be giant eagles, with cruel steel-colored beaks and large, brilliantly orange eyes. The talons on their front legs were half a foot long and deadly-looking. Each of the beasts had a thick leather collar around its neck, which was attached to a long chain, and the ends of all these were held in the vast hands of Hagrid, who came jogging into the paddock behind the creatures. "'Yee up there!' he roared, shaking the chains and urging the creatures toward the fence where the class stood. Everyone drew back slightly as Hagrid reached them and tethered the creature to the fence. "'Hippogriffs!' Hagrid roared happily, waving a hand at them. "'Beautiful, aren't they?' Harry could sort of see what Hagrid meant. Once he got over the first shock of seeing something that was half horse, half bird, he started to appreciate the hippogriff's gleaming coats, changing smoothly from feather to hair, each of them a different color. Stormy gray, bronze, pinkish roan, gleaming chestnut, and inky black. So, said rubbing his hands together and beaming around, if you want to come a bit nearer, Nobody seemed to want to. Harry, Ron, and Hermione, however, approached the fence cautiously. Now, the first thing you gotta know about hippogriffs is they're proud, said Hagrid. Easily offended, hippogriffs are. Don't you ever insult one. Might be the last thing you do. Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle weren't listening. They were talking in an undertone, and Harry had a nasty feeling they were plotting how best just to... Had a brief disconnect, anyway. Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle weren't listening. They were talking in an undertone, and Harry had a nasty feeling they were plotting how best to disrupt the lesson. You always wait for the hippogriff to make the first move, Hagrid continued. It's polite, see? You walk toward him, and you bow, 
and you wait. If he bows back, you're allowed to touch him. If he doesn't bow, then uh, get away from him sharpish, because those talons hurt. Right! Who wants to go first? Most of the class backed away in answer. Even Harry, Ron, and Hermione had misgivings. The hippogriffs were tossing their fierce heads and flexing their powerful wings. They didn't seem to like being tethered like this. You always wait for the hippogriff to make the first move, Hagrid continued. It's polite, see? You walk toward him, and you bow, and you wait. If he bows back, you're allowed to touch him. If he doesn't bow, then get away from him sharpish, because those talons hurt. Right, who wants to go first? Most of the class backed away farther in answer. Even Harry, Ron, and Hermione had misgivings. The hippogriffs were tossing their fierce heads and flexing their powerful wings. They didn't seem to like being tethered like this. No one? said Hagrid with a pleading look. I'll do it, said Harry. There was an intake of breath from behind him, and both laughed. Good man, Harry! roared Hagrid. Right then! Let's see how you get on with Buckbeak. He untied one of the chains, pulling the long gray hippogriff away from his fellows. Did I say long gray hippogriff? Hello? <laughs> he untied one of the chains, pulled the gray hippogriff away from its fellows, and slipped off its leather collar. The class on the other side of the paddock seemed to be holding its breath. Malfoy's eyes were narrowed maliciously. Easy now, Harry, said Hagrid quietly. You've got eye contact, now try not to blink. Hippogriffs don't trust you if you blink too much. Harry's eyes immediately began to water, but he didn't shut them. Buckbeak was turning his great, sharp head, and was now staring at Harry with one fierce orange eye. That's it, said Hagrid. That's it, Harry. Now, bow. Harry didn't feel much like exposing the back of his neck to Buckbeak, but he did as he was told. He gave a short bow, and then looked up. The Hippogriff was still staring haughtily at him. It didn't move. Uh, said Hagrid, sounding worried. Right, uh, back away now, Harry. Easy does it. But then, to Harry's enormous surprise, the Hippogriff suddenly bent its scaly front knees and sank into what was an unmistakable bow. Well done, Harry, said Hagrid, ecstatic. Right, you can touch him now. Pat his beak, go on. Feeling that a better reward would have been to back away, Harry moved slowly toward the Hippogriff and reached his hand out toward it. He patted the beak several times, and let the hippogriff... He patted the beak several times, and the hippogriff closed its eyes lazily, as though enjoying it. The class broke into applause, all except for Malfoy, Crab, and Goyle, who were looking deeply disappointed. Right then, Harry, said Hagrid. I reckon he might let you ride him. This was more than Harry had bargained for. He was used to a broomstick but he wasn't sure a hippogriff would be quite the same. 
You just climb up there, just behind the wing joint, said Hagrid. And mind you don't pull any of his feathers out, he won't like that. Hagrid put his foot on the top of Buckbeak's wing and hoisted himself onto its back. Buckbeak stood up. Harry wasn't sure where to hold on. Everything in front of him was covered with feathers. Go on, then, roared Hagrid, slapping the hippogriff's hindquarters. Without warning, twelve-foot wings flapped out. Mm, Without warning, twelve-foot wings flapped open on either side of Harry. He just had time to seize the hippogriff around the neck before he was soaring upward. It was nothing like a broomstick, and Harry knew which one he preferred. The hippogriff's wings beat uncomfortably on either side of him, catching him under his legs and making him feel he was about to be thrown off. The glossy feathers slipped under his fingers, and he didn't dare get a stronger grip. Instead of the smooth action of his Nimbus 2000, he now felt himself rocking backward and forward as the hindquarters of the hippogriff rose and fell beneath its wings. Buckbeak flew him once more around the paddock, and then headed back to the ground. This was the bit Harry had been dreading. He leaned back as the smooth neck lowered, feeling he was going to slip over off the beak, feeling he was going to slip off over the beak, then felt a heavy thud as the four ill-sorted feet ill-assorted. Then felt a heavy thud as the four ill-assorted feet hit the ground. He just managed to hold on and push himself straight again. Good work, Harry! roared Hagrid as everyone except Malfoy, Crab, and Goyle cheered. Okay! Who else wants to go? Emboldened by Harry's success, the rest of the class climbed cautiously into the paddock. Hagrid untied the hippogriffs one by one, and soon people were bowing nervously all over the paddock. Neville ran repeatedly backward from his, which didn't seem to want to bend its knees. Ron and Hermione practiced on the chestnut while Harry watched. Malfoy, Crab, and Goyle had taken over Buckbeak. He had bowed to Malfoy, who was now patting its beak, looking disdainful. This is very easy, Malfoy drawled, loud enough for Harry to hear him. I knew it must have been if Potter could do it. I bet you're not dangerous at all, are you? He said to the hippogriff. Are you, you great ugly brute? It happened in a flash of steely talons. Malfoy let out a high-pitched scream and then went, Someone help me! I gotta get him out of here! Hermione ran to hold open the gate as Hagrid lifted Malfoy easily. As they passed, Harry saw there was a long, deep gash on Malfoy's arm. Just a moment. Hermione ran to hold open the gate as Hagrid lifted Malfoy easily. As they passed, Harry saw that there was a long, deep gash on Malfoy's arm. Blood spattered the grass, and Hagrid ran with him. Mm -mm. Blood spattered the grass, and Hagrid ran with him, up the slope toward the castle. Very shaken, the Care of Magical Creatures class followed at a walk.
The Slytherins were all shouting about Hagrid. They should fire him straight away, said Pansy Parkinson, who was in tears. It was Malfoy's fault, snapped Dean Thomas. Crab and Goyle flexed their muscles threateningly. They all climbed the stone steps to the desert. They all climbed the stone steps into the deserted entrance hall. I'm gonna go see if he's okay," said Pansy, and they all watched her run up the marble staircase. The Slytherins, still muttering about Hagrid, headed away in the direction of their dungeon common room. Harry, Ron, and Hermione proceeded upstairs to Gryffindor Tower. "Do you think he'll be all right?" said Hermione nervously. Of course he will. Madame Pomfrey can mend cuts in about a second, said Harry, who had had far worse injuries mended magically by the nurse. That was a really bad thing to happen in Hagrid's first class, though, wasn't it? said Ron, looking worried. They wouldn't fire him, would they? said Hermione anxiously, not touching her steak and kidney pie. They'd better not said Ron, who wasn't eating either. Harry was watching the Slytherin table. A large group, including Crabbe and Goyle, was huddled together, deep in conversation. Harry was sure they were cooking up their own version of how Malfoy had been injured. "'Well, you can't say it wasn't an interesting first day back,' said Ron gloomily. They went up to the crowded Gryffindor common room after dinner, and tried to do homework that Professor McGonagall had given them, but all three of them kept breaking off and glancing out of the tower window. "'There's a light on, in Hagrid's window,' Harry said suddenly. Ron looked at his watch. "'If we hurry, we could go down and see him. It's still quite early.' "'I don't know,' Hermione said slowly, but Harry caught her glance at him. Oh, um, what? I don't know, Hermione said slowly, and Harry saw her glance at him. I'm not allowed, no, oh. hmm, I'm allowed to walk across the grounds, he said pointedly. Sirius Black hasn't got past the Dementors here, has he? So they put away their things and headed out of the portrait hole glad not to meet anybody on their way to the front doors, as they weren't entirely sure they were supposed to be out. The grass was still wet, and looked almost black in the twilight. When they reached Hagrid's hut, they knocked, and a voice growled, Come in! Hagrid was sitting in his shirt-sleeves at his scrubbed wooden table. His boarhound, Fang, had his head in Hagrid's lap. One look told him that Hagrid had been drinking, a lot. There was a pewter tankard, almost as big as a bucket, in front of him, and he seemed to be having difficulty getting them into focus. "'Are you expecting a record?' he said thickly, when he recognized them. "'Don't reckon they've ever had a teacher who lasted only one day before.' "'You haven't been fired, Hagrid?' gasped Hermione. "'Not yet!' said Hagrid miserably, taking a huge gulp of whatever was in the tankard. But only a matter of time, isn't it? After Malfoy. 
How is he? said Ron as they all sat down. It wasn't serious, was it? Madame Pomfrey fixed him up best she could, said Hagrid dully. But he's saying it's still agony. Covered in bandages, moaning. He's faking it, said Harry at once. Madame Pomfrey can mend anything. She regrew half my bones last year. Trust Malfoy to milk it for all it's worth. School governors have been told, of course, said Hagrid miserably. I reckon... Oh. They reckon I started too big. Should have left hippogriffs for later. Done flubberworms or something. Just thought it'd make a good first lesson. Oh, it's all my fault. It's all Malfoy's fault, Hagrid, said Hermione earnestly. We're witnesses, said Harry. You said hippogriffs attack if they in... You said hippogriffs attack if you insult them. It's Malfoy's problem that he wasn't listening. We'll tell Dumbledore what really happened. Yeah, don't worry, Hagrid. We'll back you up, said Ron. Tears leaked out of the crinkled corners of Hagrid's beetle-black eyes. He grabbed both Harry and Ron and pulled them into a bone-breaking hug. I think you've had enough to drink, Hagrid, said Hermione firmly. She took the tankard from the table and went outside to empty it. Ah, uh, maybe she's right, said Hagrid, letting go of Harry and Ron, who both staggered away, rubbing their ribs. Hagrid heaved himself out of his chair and followed Hermione unsteadily outside. They heard a loud splash. What's he done? said Harry nervously as Hermione came back in with the empty tankard. Stuck his head in the water barrel, said Hermione, putting the tankard away. Hagrid came back, his long hair and beard sopping wet, wiping the water out of his eyes. That's better, he said, shaking his head like a dog and drenching them all. Listen, it was good of you to come and see me. I really... Hagrid stopped, staring at Harry as though he'd only just realized he was there. What do you think you're doing, eh? he roared, so suddenly that they jumped a foot in the air. You're not to go wandering around after dark, Harry! And you two, letting him! Hagrid strode over to Harry, grabbed his arm, and pulled him to the door. Come on, Hagrid said angrily. I'm taking you all back up to the school. And don't let me catch you walking down after dark to see me again. I'm not worth that. And that is the end of chapter six. Uh, Rachel says, where did you go? Uh, I hope I'm back. Hopefully I haven't disappeared permanently. Am I back? <laughs> Can you hear me? Things look okay on my end. Hopefully that was only temporary. Let's go back to the library, shall we? <laughs> I like this little setup here. I love doing this. Rachel, let me know if you're back. I want to make sure you're around. Um, 
And to everyone listening, thank you very much. Thanks for being here. For anybody who doesn't know what this is, mine, I believe. Okay. Hopefully nothing got cut out. Um, I'll go back and review the footage. It's been a while since I did much editing on it. I've just sort of been posting them as they ended up. But uh, I thought this week was... It was a lot of fun with the voices. I'll say that much. It might have gone a little dicey in some spots with uh, my connection, but overall, like, <laughs> um, we've met a new somebody, and as usual, as I'm talking, if anybody's got anything they'd want to talk about, go ahead and put it in chat, I'd love to discuss it, um, we met uh, Professor Trelawney for the first time here, and I've been doing that same voice for Professor Trelawney in my private read-through, and uh, it's way more fun doing it for the stream. <laughs> Uh, I just do, I don't know, I just, it's just bigger. It's bigger and louder. And also our little scene with McGonagall was a lot of fun. Harsh McGonagall. Uh, but I have fun basically every week. Especially when things go pretty well. And I think, you know, this week we had, we had some sporadic issues, but overall I'm pretty pleased with it. Um, now, now we've got that, that question. That question we have every week, which is, what is Sam going to ramble about? Right? Usually we try to make it something from the, uh, I think I know what it is already. Okay, so, again, if uh, anybody has something specific they'd like to discuss, go ahead and put it in chat. Otherwise, what I want to mention is that, um, if you ever have a moment... <laughs> You have a Harry Potter moment, which, you know, usually it's not a Harry Potter moment like you've fainted on, you know, your transportation to school because some sort of incredibly frightening creature has made an appearance. Usually, when you do something embarrassing, it's uh, more mundane than that. But, Rachel, I see ya. I'm coming back to that Harry question once I'm done here. Usually, you have an embarrassing moment. And you think the whole world is looking at you and thinking, what a fool. What a fool. What a fool that person was. What a fool Sam was for, uh, let's see, what was my what was my most embarrassing moment? Is that nobody cares in a good way. In a good way, nobody cares. Nobody is waiting for you to mess up and, and waiting for you to... Uh, you know, make an error so that they can all, they can all get together and make fun. That's not how it works. Everyone's got their own things that they're worrying about. Everybody does two or three strange little embarrassing things a day, and everyone's worried about their own stuff. Everyone's worried, I hope nobody saw the embarrassing thing that I did. They're not worried about what you did. Don't worry. It's going to be fine. All right? So just uh, hold your head high. If you have an embarrassing moment, it happens. And it happens to literally everyone. Literally everyone. All right. Rachel's asking, why was Harry the only one who was attacked by the Dementors? It does seem that they were kind of focused in on him, doesn't it? That's a little odd. It's a little bit odd, right? Now, I don't want to go into too terribly much detail about that. Um, because we learn a little bit more about that later, but 
maybe maybe an important distinction to make is did they attack Harry or was Harry the most affected? And maybe that's the question to ask. How do you guys like that? Do you guys enjoy when I just pull something like really uh, sort of vague and ask another question instead of answering the one you've got? That's what you're stuck with. Welcome to Sidecar Stories. Um, yeah, I think Harry... Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I can't, I can't give you too much info because there is certainly... Um, some significance later on to why Harry seems to get special attention from the Dementors. And uh, it would just, it would be wrong of me. It would be wrong of me to um, give you too much information. You don't want to spoil anything. That's the thing. There are even, there are even certain uh, books, certain works of literature that I wouldn't mind engaging in a bit of spoilery for. Um, but the thing is, with J.K. Rowling, she has done an excellent job of crafting these stories really well. And so, I don't want to give too much away. Rachel says, zesty. <laughs> yeah, zesty. Alright. There's your zesty answer for you, Rachel. <laughs> You're giving both of us a... A little bit of a giggle. Rachel's asking, what if Haggard's dog is actually a witch or wizard under a curse? That sounds like a great opportunity to introduce something called fanfics. Maybe you know what this is, maybe not, but uh, there's a... <laughs> Rachel says, just kidding. I, I felt it, Rachel. But there is, there is a, um, a whole genre of writing called fanfiction where... I think it's pretty self-explanatory, but if it's if you're if you're just not quite sure what that's all about, um, basically people who are big fans of stuff will go and do their own writing about that thing, and um, most of it ends up being just sort of a fun hobby to engage in. Um, I haven't done any of it. My well, you know what? No, not not. I've never done any fanfic writing. I I was such a big fan of the Lord of the Rings when I was young that when I very first started writing, I wrote something called the Sword of Gilead, which was, I I got what a chapter and a half in. I believe each chapter was three fourths of a page, maybe. I was in middle school. I wasn't even in middle school yet. I was in elementary school. Um, but I liked it so much that I wrote something that was basically a ripoff of it. It was a sword instead of a ring, but, you know, it was it was the story, let's be honest. Um, it had the same composition of characters. There was a, I think there was a, there was a hobbit. There was a, excuse me, like a hobbit. His best friend, Hobbit, they left home. Uh, they met with an elf, a uh, dwarf, a wizard, etc. Yeah, it was, it was absolutely a knockoff. But the thing is... Uh, some of these fanfics have there have been a, a very sh there's been a very short list of fanfics that have gone on to become actual significant eh, significant literature significant literature we'll call it culturally significant uh, even if it's not my cup of tea um, but uh, yeah there was there's a specific fan fiction from uh, written by somebody who was a big fan of the Twilight series that 
is, let's see, I think the third movie of the fan fiction just came out. Uh, you would recognize it if you heard it. I don't think it's the sort of thing I want to talk about on this particular show. But, um, yeah, it's uh, it, it has a slight, slight chance of becoming very big. But I don't really think that's the point, if I'm honest. I think the point of fan fiction is to really celebrate something that you love. And it's an excellent way to practice writing. Um because you start with some of the the things that are difficult about writing start you start with characters that are already compelling you start with a setting that is already fascinating um but what those things don't give you are scene construction and and dialogue and so you get to practice those things yourself you start with you know some some things that other people have made and you practice dialogue and scene construction and pace and rhythm and uh, all those you know wonderful writing skills um, and I think as a celebration of something that you love it's a great way to kind of commune with other writers and to have a community with not just writers but also just other people who have loved this and not only that but I have read some fan fiction, not a lot, not not for not for this. It's been sort of I think well, let's see, one of them was video game related, but basically, it's a great way to learn a little bit more about other things in the universe that you're curious about. I think it's true of any series. Once you've finished, um, especially if that series is related to kind of a fantastical world like uh, Hunger Games or like Harry Potter. Um, you get that itch, you get that itch for something that's the same, you know, you get the, the itch for that, that eighth Harry Potter book, etc. Something that's the same, but fresh. And that's really tough. Um, you know, sometimes you can get these sequels that really, you know, they feel like a letdown. And a lot of times that's because the compelling story, the important story to tell in that world or with those characters has already been told. And so even though people love it and the author loves it and they don't, you know, it can be books or movies. When you get a bad sequel or a bad reboot of something, it's very rarely because they were like, yeah, we'll just throw something together. A lot of times it's because they tried really hard, you know, maybe not everybody, maybe, maybe, you know, there were some people who weren't in it for the right reasons, but oftentimes, you know, reboots of the things that we love or, you know, long, long, uh, awaited sequels or, um, you know, begrudging prequels. The people who want to do these things, they work hard at it because they love these things. But sometimes the, the story that you love about it has already been told. Um, and Rachel, I see your, your next question. I'll get to that too. But uh, with fan fictions, it can be a wide range of skill. It can be a wide range of uh, interest for you. But occasionally, you just think to yourself like, Man, whatever happened to the car? Whatever happened to um, the the blue Ford Anglia that disappears into the Forbidden Forest? What what happened there? One of the big ones that I would love to read is what happened between. Well, this okay, so I, I don't want to get into spoilers there. Okay, so here's here's one. What happened to Professor Quirrell? After school, 
you know, he went off and uh, was doing some studying in... Where was it? Albania? But he got he gets connected with Voldemort at some point, right? Uh, J.K. Rowling doesn't tell us anything about that. So we don't know. And so that would be an interesting opportunity. Just like the, uh, the, Ford, the flying car with seemingly a mind of its own. A little bit like the love bug. Um, running around the Forbidden Forest. Great opportunities for fan fictions. And so if you can find one that's, uh, you know, by a, a writer that you like reading and that tells a story that you like, sometimes it's an excellent opportunity to revisit these worlds that you've gotten so used to spending time in. All right. Rich is asking, so being a witch slash wizard is by blood, then who was the first witch slash wizard? I'll tell you what. Actually, it ain't even like that. <laughs> um... There are, there. It's, it seems like there's an indication that you are more likely to have uh, magic in you um, if you've got wizarding parents. You know, the, the, uh, the Weasleys, both parents have magic and all of their many children have uh, magical ability. But Hermione's parents are both muggles. Um, I think they're both dentists, I think is the... Uh, is the uh, the note which I I don't know why that strikes me as funny. It it's perfectly normal for two parents to be dentists, but I don't know. It's just I don't know. It seems funny to me. Um, but yeah, they are both Muggles, um, and so she doesn't have any experience with the magical world. And um, so I think the first witch slash wizard. I've often wondered if it's a little bit like the. Uh, Avatar, Last Airbender, that sort of thing, where it was sort of something that was transferred to people by something else. You know, there there are magical creatures, like we know. Um, unicorns being one of them, so I almost wonder if it's something that started long ago, being transferred, the magic of some creature into a human. I don't know. They don't make it clear, though. They. She doesn't make it clear, J.K. Rowling. All right, we're winding down. I've got one more question in me, if you got one. Otherwise, it's been a lovely evening. I always like spending my evenings like this. Great, great way to mark a week. And let me say, as usual, all y'all in school, teachers, students, both of you, you're heroes, and I appreciate what you're doing. I've said it before, I think this is the real magic that we've got. As muggles, this is, this is the magic that we have. It's the ability to teach things to each other. That's amazing. That's something we take for granted a lot. A lot. We take for granted the idea that, uh, you know, like I, I've, got, I've got recipes I'm working on right now. I've, like, that I've, you know, I've, I'm, I've been doing cooking. I have these recipes. The only way for me to know how to make what's something I've made recently or something I'm going to something I'm going to make soon rice pudding. The only way that I would know how to do that is one do it a bunch of times myself and get it wrong so many times that I don't have time to do anything else, you know? If it weren't for the the communication and the ability for people to teach things to each other, can you imagine how much less you'd be able to accomplish in your life? 
Imagine, imagine how much less you'd be able to do. It would be impossible to get anything done because you've got to do everything yourself the first time and test it and, and you know continue to improve on it till you're actually decent at it. But think about it. You pull a recipe off the internet. You learn your um you you learn your your colors and your numbers and your uh, words and how to read. It's it's really an amazing thing that we can do for one another and. It's not something that any other creature can do. Not nearly as well, anyway. Um, and truly, and I'm not exaggerating, and I'm not saying this because I've got this, you know, this Sunday night thing that I love doing. This isn't something I make up for the show. I really do think that's magic. I think that is magical. I think it's awesome. All right. Finally, Rachel, can there be witch slash wizard animals? I don't know. At the heart of it, I don't think there's been any mention in any of the stuff that I've read, any of the stuff that I've seen from the movies, etc., of animals with magical power. Um, I should say magical powers. There are some animals that, uh, especially you know, as we get deeper into the Fantastic Beasts and where to find them, we learn a lot about animals who have kind of like they would have one or two that would have a power some sort of magical ability but not the sort of general ability to perform magic and learn magic at large um, there is obviously um, something that Harry barely barely caught on to because he was so distracted um, in Professor McGonagall's class about transfiguration, some mention of something called animagi, wizards who can take the shape of animals. I wonder if we'll hear anything more about that in the future. <laughs> wonderful people, it's been a wonderful night. I hope you have a fantastic week. I look forward very much to seeing you next Sunday. And I hope uh, for a very peaceful, very educational week. I'll see you on Sunday. Have a good night. I'm signing off. And if you want to keep up this conversation, head over to Instagram. I'm going to be up there. Uh, there's a discussion thread I post every week. If you want to talk about anything, I'll be in there because I do unfortunately have to sign off of the internet at some point, right? I can't be on here full time. All right. Have a good night. See you on Instagram, I guess. Bye. <laughs>